0: Thank you band, yeah, this is, they just, everybody, everybody just wants the band to keep going, so yeah, even the sound system is complaining, so all right, um, yeah, it's, uh, I'm excited to be here with you guys, my name is Ross, I get to serve here as one of the uh, pastors here, and if you are new with us, visiting, maybe you're coming from out of town, or maybe you're just checking out churches, we're, s- a couple things, firstly, we're super glad you're here. Um, we hope you feel really warmly welcomed. Secondly, you should know that I'm not the guy who's normally up on stage preaching. Uh, I'm filling in for our lead pastor, Justin. But we're going to be continuing the same series through the Gospel of Matthew. And before we jump in, I just want to say a quick word. We, we all know that we're uh, continually assessing how we are responding as a church to, uh, and, uh, to, to COVID-19 and how that changes the way... Uh, we, uh, we do things. We want to hold a couple things in tension together. We want to submit to our governing authorities, not only uh, with our actions, but also also with our attitude and our posture. We want to have, uh, secondly, compassion for our uh, neighbors and, and brothers and sisters, but we also want to not be driven or motivated by, by fear or anxiety. We serve the creator of the coronavirus. We serve the, the Lord of every uh, every life. So we want to hold all three of those things in tension, and that means that some of us are going to land in different areas of the map, where we're, where we're at, where we're at, how we feel. And so we want to uh, go forward acknowledging that, uh, knowing that uh, uh, we're all in different places and that we can love one another and serve our, uh, submit to our government and serve our king, uh, even from different perspectives. So just that aside before we jump into our word, the word this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 29, start in verse 20. Nine. Let me pray for us uh, before we jump in, and then we will we will explore His Word together. Um, let's see. Let me get the PowerPoint going. And so, okay, there we go. Cool. Let me pray for us, Father. We uh, we praise you because you are a good and a holy God. Um, and so now we pray that, that in your holiness you would be glorified in your bride in the church this morning. Um, would you do that by changing us? Change us even now while we're sitting in these seats as we come face to face with the truth of your gospel by the power of your Spirit. Would you comfort our aching hearts with your tender love? Would you inspire us to fight against sin? And would you convict us even where we're, our worship of you fall short of your design, and we pray this all in Christ's name, Amen. All right, there are certain collisions that you can see coming in life from a mile away. Have you ever been uh, been in a in a uh, in a parking lot? I guess my clicker is not going to work this morning, but um, have you ever been in a parking lot and watching? Uh, watching a, one car maybe back out of its spot while another car goes down the center aisle and you just see, I mean there's there's an, a fender bender about to happen at like a mile an hour. You can see it from a mile away but you, but there's nothing you can do uh, and and you just know and sure enough sooner or later these cars bump into one another. One image that's ingrained into my head from childhood is when I was maybe 10 or 11 years old. I was playing football in the backyard with my, with some friends and uh, I remember this one play, I, I, was, I got to be the quarterback and when I was running my favorite play, which is just the Hail Mary, which is the only play that a 10 year old knows in football. But I, I remember being quarterback, dropping back f- for this pass. I, I, I let the ball go to my friend. Uh, and as soon as I let the ball go, I knew that this play was not gonna end well. My, my friend was running a perfect route to the end zone. But uh, in my parents' yard, right next to the, to the part of the yard where the end zone was, was also a deck that was about four feet high, which is about the head height of a 10-year-old. And, uh, and my friend was running like this, catching an over-the-shoulder sh- pass, and, and uh, sure enough, the deck nailed him right in the forehead. And uh, to make it worse, there was, uh, in my, front, on the, at the edge of my parents' deck, there was uh, this row of raspberry bushes, uh, which so, so the, the ball, my friend's forehead, the deck, the, and then this thorny pile of raspberry bushes all collide at the exact same moment. And my, fr- my friend got up from this mess, he's confused, and he's got a big bruise right there, a big gash on his forehead from it. Um, there are certain collisions that you just know are happening, that you know are going to happen. And that's exactly what we've been seeing uh, at, uh, over the last several months, as we've been walking through the book of Matthew, we've seen, uh, ever since the very beginning, when when um, when Jesus at his birth uh, is is a, there's an assassination attempt on this child. We've known that sooner or later Jesus was going to come into a head-on collision with the authorities and with the rulers of his day. Uh, And all of this tension and conflict and opposition, it finally comes to a head when Jesus enters Jerusalem for the final time, during the final week of his life. And that's what we're going to be discussing this morning. Matthew, he paints for us a gripping image uh, of Jesus' collision course with his Opponents, and he he paints this image really in uh, from for what we're going to look at in three scenes, and in each of these three scenes, we're going to see Jesus from a different angle. And while while it's on the one hand predictable, we know what's coming; we know from the beginning that Jesus is going to die. It's also at the same time a lot more complex than I think what we normally think. There's there's layers to the tension. Into the drama. So, as we look at Jesus in these three scenes from these three different angles, we'll see some of that complexity. So, let's let's let me read for us, starting in in uh, verse twenty nine of chapter twenty. And we're going to read the whole thing, so it's kind of a long a long section. So, um, uh, so it'll demand some of our uh, attention here. But I'm going to read the whole thing for us at the beginning, uh, and then we'll break it down as we as we go. Okay. So, starting in verse twenty nine of chapter twenty. And as they went out of Jericho, that's Jesus and his disciples, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be open. And Jesus, in pity, or Jesus moved to compassion, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And they said to him, Do you hear what these, what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Alright, so we begin Jesus' entry in Jerusalem, actually not in Jerusalem, but outside Jerusalem in the city of Jericho. So this is the final leg of his journey uh, into Jerusalem. He's been most of his ministry up in Galilee, and uh, now he's he's heading uh, down to Jerusalem. And in it we see, in our first scene, what we learn of Jesus is that the son of David, as he's called here, the son of David is a tender titan. Okay, The son of David is a tender titan. Jesus is heading west toward Jerusalem. You can kind of see on the map the journeys that he's made. He spent most of his time up in Galilee. Uh, now he's, he went f- then, then down to uh, uh, Judea east of the Jordan. That means uh, or jo- Judea beyond the Jordan, which means east of the Jordan River. Now he's heading basically west to Jerusalem. He stops at Jericho, which is about a full day's journey from Jerusalem, about 15 miles. And now he's making his final leg. Of the journey and as he leaves Jericho there's some homeless people sitting on the side of the road they're begging for money and they yell out, have mercy on us son of David. Now as we've seen that title it's a way of referring to Jesus' royalty. He's a member in the line of David. They had heard of this guy claiming to be the Messiah uh, and they wanted the blessings that this son of David that this Messiah was supposed to bring. So they want a little piece of of the action. And the crowds try to shut them up, but Jesus comes to a complete stop and he calls over to them. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? Now, we read that and we're like, okay, what is... why would... I mean, come on, Jesus. Certainly, you know what they want. I mean, you're a miracle worker. They're blind. You, you put two and two together, Jesus. But, but what Jesus invites these men to do, these men who have never looked another man in the eye before, he invites them to approach Him boldly and, asks, and to ask, them, ask Him directly for what they truly and what they deeply want. This is an amazing Messiah. This is an amazing king. He, he, he would empower vulnerable, poor, outcast, unclean people to come to Him personally and without hindrance. Pouring out their deepest yearnings, their deepest pains, their deepest anxieties, directly and openly. That's, what, that's the scene here on, this, on the side of the road outside Jerusalem. And so they answer him saying, open our eyes. And then he, it says that he was moved with compassion. That he, was, he responded in pity. And I want us to, to, to think about that phrase for a second. Jesus was moved with compassion. That is, he was stirred in his affections, in his guts for these two men. With tender-hearted love. And so then he touches their eyes. And we kind of gloss over that phrase, but think about touching someone's face. like That's a very intimate, a very personal action. You just don't go touching people's faces, especially not now. But, but not, not in Jesus' day either. And with this tender, merciful, compassionate act, he violently and immediately heals them. This is the image of Jesus that we're left with just before he enters Jerusalem. And he experiences the whirlwind of events that will take place during that, that, that week. This is, this is a tender, titan. In the face of their supreme need and vulnerability, Jesus is an intimate and a tender-hearted king. And the same is true for us. In in the face of our supreme need, we have a tender-hearted king. Now, unfortunately, I think for, for a lot of us, myself included, this is a hard reality to come to terms with. Harder than we might think. Uh, I think most of us who, who would, you know, outwardly or self-identify as followers of Jesus, uh, we probably wouldn't deny the fact that we need Jesus' compassionate mercy. We, we know that apart from grace, we know intellectually and we can articulate that apart from grace, we stand guilty before God. But there is still a sense in which, even for those of us who have been following Jesus for decades, it can be hard to know Jesus as tender, as affectionate, and is truly merciful. It's difficult for me to believe, for us to believe, that the sovereign creator of the universe, the God who spoke to Moses on the mountain, the God who casts out demons, can look at us, knowing the filth, knowing the dirtiness, knowing the unloveliness that resides within us, and that God can be moved in his heart, like and have an emotional response of love toward us. If I, if I were to ask you the question, how does God feel about you? How does Jesus feel about you? Not, uh, what, what would you say? I'm not asking how does God view you or what is your standing before God, but what, what is Jesus' emotion toward you? Many times, if I were to answer that question honestly, I would have to say that God is kind of obligated to love me, like he loves me, but really it's because he has to be like, he's like signed a document somewhere saying that he has to, but every time I mess up, he's saying, again, like you're good, good thing we signed that piece of paper a while ago, right? Uh, But maybe for you, it's uh, at a heart level, at a gut level, you believe God feels disgust toward you, or God is uh, disapproved. Uh, disapproves of you. He views you with disapproval. My friend, in Christ, God sees your supreme, unclean, sinful vulnerability like two blind beggars. And he is moved toward tender hearted compassion for you. If you are united to Christ by faith, his heart toward you is joy, mercy, and love. So much so that he doesn't just declare you innocent in a courtroom, but he brings you into his home and makes you his child. All right, that's the first scene that that we've looked at on the road outside of Jericho. We see Jesus is a tender titan. Then our our next scene starts in verse 1 of chapter 21, if you're following along. And Jesus... Uh, here is now on the outskirts of Jerusalem in, in a village called Bethphage. He's uh, kind of up on a mountain overlooking the capital city. And in the verses that follow, we, we see, secondly, about Jesus, that the Son of David brings peace without war. Now, as we read this, it might be a familiar, uh, a familiar story to you, but if you think about what happens next, it's really profound. Jesus, he sends two of his disciples ahead of them into the village to get a donkey and it's cool That 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 they hadn't been prearranged. That they've been providentially set aside. I mean, if you think about it, if you're driving to Anchorage one day, and you know the guy, the person that you're driving with, you says, "Hey, uh, the, f- the the f- the first car you see is going to be a red Chevy Silverado. I want you to just like pull over in the parking lot next to it, jump in, and, and drive off." Okay? That's basically what Jesus is telling telling them to do. Hey, not only does he call the fact that the first car is a Chevy Silverado, he also calls the fact that. You can just drive off and it'd be cool, like right? Okay? So, so that's what Jesus is doing. And, and, and Jesus does this, Matthew tells us, in order to fulfill the prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. 9. Okay? Now, as always, whenever we read a prophecy quoted in the New Testament, we need to, to go back and check out the Old Testament context because... When an, oh, a New Testament author quotes an Old Testament, he's just, Justin say, says it, he's just including a hyperlink, but he wants, we to, wants us to, to click on the link and to, to, to go to the, the full website, to check out the whole website. And, that's, and, and so uh, in, in, in the book of Zechariah, we, we see one of the last books of the Old Testament that was written. Zechariah speaks to the, to the people of Judah after they've been exiled out of their homeland and then they've returned. And they've started, these exiled pe- uh, people that have returned, they've started to build, rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple there, but they are facing resistance and opposition from the surrounding tribes. So, they're a struggling remnant trying to carve out a life for themselves out of the rubble and the disaster that their sin had brought on them. But in the midst of this oppression and frustration, Zechariah promises hope. And specifically, at the, at the beginning of chapter 9, he says that he's going to completely abru- ab- obliterate these, uh, the pesky tribes that are, the, that are uh, threatening Jerusalem. And then, in the beginning of verse 9, he describes the peace that will come to Jerusalem after he takes out their enemies. Okay, so let's read, just in, in context, Zechariah chapter 9. We'll read the first couple verses here. Uh, we'll, we'll read the couple verses surrounding it. It says... Uh, Zechariah writes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Again, we see, Jesus, uh, we see God speaking to His people uh, with the intimacy of a father-child relationship. And He says, Shout o, aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is He, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, which is another name for Israel, and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free. That is, those those who have been taken captivity by these enemies. I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Alright, so this is the image that Jesus is is conjuring up when he's jumping on this donkey and riding into Jerusalem. Well, he, he is saying, I am a peacetime ruler. Right? I, I am coming with the peace and the, the, the peace that's bought by the victory uh, that I've won uh, over the enemies of God's people. Right? He doesn't wear a sword on his belt. There's no war horse. In fact, he's come to remove the chariot and the war horse. That's what we see in verse 10. He he comes not to kill the nations, but to speak peace to the nations. And as he makes peace with Jerusalem's enemies, he promises also to release the prisoners of war. That is, those people who have been taken into captivity. That's verse 11. Now, if we're paying attention closely to this prophecy in its context, then there is no way that that this prophecy could have been fulfilled in Jesus' day right if you think about it god's people are still under oppression they're they're still under roman occupation in in judea uh right and so this is not like the moabites and these other little tiny tribes attacking them they're under oppression by a global empire okay but jesus is here he's riding on a donkey saying Look, guys, the war is over. I, I, I've already won. I've I, I forced our enemies into submission. They've signed the peace treaty. And now we can enjoy the peace and the prosperity of God's Messiah. Now, we have to ask ourselves, how can Jesus say that given Judea, Judea's uh, state, right? God's people are clearly suffering. Well, look at what he was about to do. By the end of this Passover week, Jesus would not be at the head of an army, he would be heading down to a grave. And in his death and resurrection, Jesus would secure an even better peace than what the Jews wanted or what the Jews expected. And with his arrival in Jerusalem, the victory was as good as won already. He would conquer not the armies of Rome, but the armies of an even greater enemy, sin and death itself. And this is exactly what Jesus, I think, is still doing today. While you and I, we're often concerned with, with outward circumstances, right? he is always dealing with the problem that we are content to ignore, or at least to overlook the greater, the greater issue. Just one example of this. Um, over the last couple weeks, Monica and I, we have been uh, trying to remodel a house, or sort of remodel a house that we, that we just bought and we're trying to get it ready to, so we can move in and uh, as we've been doing this this process has been pretty stressful uh, we actually just moved in over this weekend but so the stress is mostly gone but it's been a pretty stressful uh, couple of weeks there's always been projects kind of looming it's been that if you if you ever notice in life I kind of sum up life as like there's just you just move from like one cloud over your head to the next cloud where you're trying to like get things done and then with projects there's like projects takes like ten times longer than what you think they're they're supposed to stake there's always there there's always snags and there's always miscommunications and so in this stress I've noticed the the way I respond to stress is taking it out on Monaco or taking or in the way I communicate or the, the, the things I do and, and and it's been frustrating trying to get these things done but what I've learned is that I've been viewing this project of moving into this house a lot like the Jews viewed their Roman oppressors. Now I realize that's a first world problem, like I'm not, com- I'm not comparing, you know, my moving and their, and, you know, Roman occupation, but, but uh, it's an external problem that I desperately wanted to be solved, so much so that I became blind to, to the real issue, to the deeper issue, to my own sin. And as much as Jesus is concerned to provide for the physical housing needs of my family, and he is, uh, he is even more concerned about dealing with the selfishness, with the impatience, with the unkindness, and the sin that dwells in my heart. And it was a, a gracious thing for God to reveal that to me as, I've, uh, as, we've, as we've gone through this process. But what about you? Where has your fixation on an external problem caused you to neglect Jesus' desire to deal with the root problem of your life, your own sin? Where has your fixation on an external problem caused you to neglect Jesus' desire to deal with the root problem in your life? Where are you frustrated or disappointed with Jesus for not fixing the circumstances of your life? And then how might that frustration be blinding you t- to his concern with the state of your own heart? How might your frustration with Jesus be blinding, or your, or your circumstances, be blinding you to his concern with the state of your heart? In Jesus, we have a Messiah who is a tender titan, who ushers in peace without the need for war, because he is bringing peace to us our ultimate conflict, to our ultimate struggle. But then uh, we transition in verse 10 of chapter 21. Jesus finally enters Jerusalem, uh, and the whole city is buzzing with the question, right? Everyone knows that something is up, and the citizens of Jerusalem ask the crowds that were following him into the city, they ask, who is this? Did you notice that question? It's kind of like... If you, if you think about it, that's really the question of the entire book of Matthew that, that the crowds kind of sneak in there, that Matthew places in perfectly for us. So it's a profound question, and, and they, they give an answer. This is Jesus the prophet. And then Jesus goes into the outer temple court, okay? So this is where Jesus walks through. He's, you can see this on the, on the outside, uh, all the way around is the outer court of the Gentiles. Uh, there's three, uh, This is the furthest out of three different courts in the temple, and this is where they would have been preparing for the, the sacrifices of the Passover. Remember, it's Passover week, so basically everybody's allowed in here. We'll, we'll find out later that there's blind people and lame, uh, uh, paralyzed people in the in in this court. There who are unclean people, Gentiles and these these paralyzed people. But it's the outer courts. It's not the building of the temple itself. Uh, and all the preparations for the sacrifices would have been taking place. And this is, uh, uh, and so, uh, and and when he arrives, we read he just he goes ape. He starts flipping tables, throwing around money. There were those selling animals and wood and oil, the things that you need for to make a sacrifice. And then, of course, anytime you're selling religious goods or religious materials you have an awesome opportunity to gouge people for money, right? Because these people need to buy, they have to, their eternal destiny rides on them being able to purchase this. So you can just make make it however expensive as you want to make it, right? Uh, And then uh, there were also money changers there, which was and their job was to convert uh, the, the, the Greek currency into temple currency because the temple tax had to be paid. It couldn't be paid in Gentile currency. It had to be paid in holy, with holy money. And of course, this, any, this exchange of money, you had uh, another opportunity for extortion. And Jesus sees how his people are being abused and how his temple is being profaned, and he is filled with righteousness. Anger. He burns with a desire to see his people worship God with pure hearts. And what we learn about uh, Jesus from this third scene is that the Son of David brings war where we are at peace. Right. No longer in this f- scene in the temple is he a tender titan. He is the Hulk. He, he, this is not a gentle king waving a white flag, he, refusing to make war. Now he is waging war. But he's not waging war against the Romans. He's waging war against his own people. Right? You see what the son of David does. On the one hand, he brings peace with, without a sword. But at the same time, almost paradoxically, he brings war where we, where his people, are at peace. Now most likely, the, the religious leaders and the priests, they, they knew about the extortion that was taking place. Right? They, and they knew it was wrong. No one confronts Jesus about what he does. Nobody says, hey, stop, you're wasting God's money. Like Nobody freaks out about that. They, when they do confront him, it's about something totally different we'll, we'll look at in verse 15. Uh, but, but if you think about it, imagine if you're at the Wednesday market walking down and then this guy comes with a baseball bat and he's just thrashing booze and taking people's cash registers and throwing money around and breaking merchandise and stuff. What would happen? I mean, at the very least, somebody's going to call the cops Probably somebody's going to y- y- at least yell at them, try to try to stop him, right? and, and more than likely, uh, at some point, somebody's going to tackle him, right? You're you're going to confront him. Why? Because the vendors have every right to be selling the goods that they're they're selling, right? Uh, but that is not what happens to Jesus. That's because everyone knows that the vendors at, 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 in the temple uh, were. Uh, were, didn't have a right to be selling the way they sold things in the temple. And the priests even knew that Jesus's radical actions were completely justified. But they had made peace, they had grown content with their false and self-serving forms of worship. It was a, a temple system that had come to benefit those at top, and everybody knew it was repressive, everyone knew it was abusive, but it's just it's really easy to to ignore those kinds of problems. Jesus, however, he was not comfortable with this kind of peace. And so he wages war. And so the question comes to us then, where have we made peace with worship that is self-serving, with worship that displeases God? The, The Jews had developed a system in which some people were making a profit from the worship of others. We don't really have like an exact parallel to that. I mean, certainly there are pastors and preachers and worship artists who are just in it for the buck, like they make worship into a money-making scheme. But I think for most of us, it's a little bit more subtle than that. Maybe following Jesus for you, maybe carrying out religious practices, if if you want to call them that, maybe that's a way for you to set yourself over and above others who aren't quite as spiritual as you, All right? You uh, you you like when people know how deep your Bible reading times are, right? You, you're quick to mention how often you serve in the church or how often you share uh, share Jesus with non Christians. You, you you see how easily how, how how we can so easily twist religious practices into acts of of self service. Maybe not for financial gain, but for uh, social gain. Maybe for you, uh, your, your heart has grown cold during this season to the things of God. Maybe your worship is apathetic at best, and, and serving Him and, and being with Him in His Word is, uh, there's really no draw for you. Know that, that Jesus is a tender, on the one hand, He's a tender and a compassionate toward those who are weak, toward those who are bruised. But we must not make peace with, we must not grow content with that apathy. Jesus ha- has come to wage war against mediocre and self-serving worship. He hates it. And then in the last couple of ver- verses of our, of our section, we see that Jesus he wants to replace this self-serving worship with worship that truly honors him. He heals more blind people and more lame people. And then the priests get mad, and then they say, do you, do you hear these children? They're, they're calling you the Messiah. You, you need to shut this up, okay? But Jesus refuses, and instead he quotes Psalm 8, uh, and which is a psalm of, a song of praise to the Messiah. And he applies it directly to himself. And so basically what he's doing is this. He's saying, not only should these children continue to praise me as a human Messiah, they should praise me as Yahweh, that is, as God Himself. And Jesus had already claimed back in in chapter 12 that He was greater than the temple. And now He is showing us why He is greater than the temple that He cares so much about. In Jesus, God dwells among His people, which is what the temple was always supposed to point toward. God's dwelling place with His people. And Jesus is telling us that true worship is worship of Jesus as God himself. True worship is the humble and the desperate cry of a child. And this is what you and I need. We need a king who takes our distorted, apathetic, self-serving worship and makes it pleasing to him. Now friends, as we close, the son of David is what was not the king the Jews wanted. Uh, but he was the king that they needed and we too desperately need to know his tender-hearted compassion in the face of our vulnerability we need to know the, the the victory that he has secured through a humble death and we need to desperately wage war on our and we need him to desperately wage war on our self-seeking worship the boldness of our gentle king calls us Uh, to be known by Him intimately, to to follow Him fully, and to worship Him completely. So let me pray for us as we close. Father, would You you cause us to know more and more fully uh, Your tenderness toward us, uh, the peace that You have... uh, secured the victory that you have secured for us over sin and death would you cause us to uh, to to repent more fully of 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 mediocre of self-seeking worship would you teach us from our hearts from the core of who we are to worship you with everything that we have Um, would you change us as we as we said and um, we pray this in christ's name amen